0: podcast jennifer ryle co-author of creating great choices talks about making great choices in creating the future of earth so stay tuned welcome everyone to jobs of future podcast today we have with us jennifer ryle Uh, She's an adjunct uh, professor at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, specializing in creative problem solving. Her focus is on helping everyone from undergraduate students to business executives to create better choices. More of uh, of the time. Jennifer is the co-author of Creating Great Choices, um, a Leader's Guide to Integrative Thinking with Roger L. Martin from former dean of Rotman School of Management, based on a decade of teaching and practice with integrative thinking. Mm -hmm. The book lays out uh, practical methodologies for tackling our most waxing business problems. Using illustrations from organizations like Lego, Vanguard, Unilever, the book shows how individuals can leverage the tension of opposite ideas uh, to create a third better way forward. Uh, An award-winning teacher, Jennifer leads training and integrative thinking strategy and innovation at organizations of all types. From small nonprofit to some of the largest companies in the in the world. With that, Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure.
1: I'm happy to be
0: here. Beautiful. I think it's it's intriguing. I think every aspect of that bio. And 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 by the way, thank you so much for uh, picking my request to come on the podcast. Because I think uh, we definitely, whenever we get to hear a perspective of a practitioner or at least a researcher about about this idea of uh, where we're heading to when it comes to future i think that's phenomenal so why don't you walk us through your journey like uh, that will be that would be amazing
1: so my journey in terms of how i wound up in this room today
0: yes uh,
1: <laughs> well i'm uh i work in a business school but i'm a little unusual for someone who works in a business school my original undergrad is in the liberal arts hmm. english literature and history And when I graduated, I became a creative. So I worked as a copywriter, early days of e-commerce, doing some things online and um, really enjoyed it. But then my department was outsourced. Mm. And we were sent to work at a studio. It was pretty toxic, a pretty miserable environment. For me, it was a meaningfully worse job. And what's more, I actually thought it was a bad business decision. The way they negotiated the contract um, suggested to me that they were going to get roughly the same amount of work for roughly the same amount of money, but there was no quality metric. Mm. And so it was going to be worse. Um, and so no one had asked my opinion as a senior copywriter as to whether this was a good business decision. I clearly didn't have the language and the credibility to be taken seriously in that realm. So I decided to do an MBA and my intention was to learn the secret language, right? What are the mm. handshakes and, What's the terminology? And then I could go back in, into the world of marketing, consumer goods, that general space, and then do a better job, change the world, all those things. When I got here to the Rotman School, I met our then Dean Roger Martin, who, like me, was unconventional. Roger had been a management consultant his whole career. And he was really in the early stages of taking this idea of integrative thinking that we're going to talk about today. And take it out into the world. He was trying to figure out how to teach our MBA students here at Rotman what this was and how they could apply it. I was really intrigued. I took a class from him, really enjoyed it. And then when I was graduating, he asked me to stay and work with him for a year to help him figure out how to communicate this in lots and lots of different ways. I think he figured out I was kind of a storyteller um, Mm -hmm. and so asked me to stay and work with him. And that was uh, 12 years ago. So we're still having a lot of fun working on this, on strategy, innovation, a whole bunch of connected disciplines, um, taking really great theory and then asking, how does someone actually do it in their job? What does that look like and how can we help them?
0: Interesting, interesting. And, and what is uh, your role today? Like, What's your current role?
1: So I, have, I wear a couple of hats. I have two here at the Rotman School. So I teach Integrative Thinking Strategy, uh and design thinking to undergrad mba and executive audiences i also have uh, a sort of research role i'm working in the martin prosperity institute on a project related to the future of work and the future of democratic capitalism no big deal it's just a small topic mm-hmm. uh, and then the other half of my time i spend with organizations so i work with uh companies mainly in the united states on their strategy or on their innovation challenges
0: interesting so what is Martin Prosperity Institute? I think the name is pretty, pretty stark. I think good good choice with the name. So what, what exactly is that? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair. Fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast.
1: So the Martin Prosperity Institute was started a decade ago. It's an uh, independent think tank. So it's part of the University of Toronto, but it's not politically affiliated. So uh, nonpartisan, I guess, would be the terminology. And it is looking at issues of shared prosperity. And there are two dominant themes of our work. The first is led by Richard Florida. Richard is the uh, most, most famous and important, I guess I would say, urban theorist in the world. He studies cities. Uh, and does extremely important and and exciting work there about how cities change, evolve, and grow. So he does our work around cities. And then Roger and I have been uh, embarking, we embarked on a project about five years ago that is more broadly about democratic capitalism and prosperity. We started to see some storm clouds on the horizon five years Mm ago uh, that suggested that shared prosperity wasn't moving forward. And if that's the case, that puts not just companies, but democracy at risk. And I think we've seen some of that play out around the world, not, not just in the United States, over the last couple of years where people are starting to lose trust in their democratic systems, starting to see work as um, less than meaningful. Uh, it it takes more than it gives from our lives. Uh, and so we've been studying that question, what's driving uh, the fact that we no longer have our shared prosperity and how might we think about changing that
0: fascinating so um, how is that connected to something called integrative thinking like is is that the birth child of this research or what's what's your thoughts there
1: so we actually think integrative thinking might provide some possible answers so um there are a bunch of places in democratic capitalism where we accept trade-offs so we say um the capital markets need to be the the ultimate driver of everything that companies do and so it just we have to accept that we are going to be increasingly short-term only focused on the shareholder um, maximizing shareholder value is the purpose of business and there are a whole bunch of people who believe that's true that's the only way to think about organizations and then you have an emerging group of folks you say that's a recipe for the end of the world um people can't uh grow forever it's not possible for us to actually do that and so we need alternative models that say the purpose of a business is to exist for the long run, to serve its customers, to treat its employees extraordinarily well, so that we're creating a better society. We believe that, that there is a lot of room between the two extremes to imagine better answers where we grow and uh, get great returns for shareholders appropriately enough, but also make the world a better place. So the hypothesis is that whether it's on the economic side or the democratic side, that there may be answers that are better than the answers we have. Certainly on the democracy side, the Republicans and the Democrats in the States have stopped speaking to each other. Mm. We can't even listen at this point. We see similar things in the UK. Um, I think in India you see similar divide. Uh, There are divides around the world where we're moving further apart uh, Mm. in ideology. And so are there ways we can think of creating better answers that enable people to engage in different ways?
0: Interesting. And, and, um, so, what is what is the impact of this so-called tribalism uh, when it comes to in 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 the productivity uh, of institute? Like, what what has been your finding and how it's in, how it's impacting the future of work? Uh, what, what's your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so I, I think there are many impacts of tribalism. Partly, it just makes us um, more suspicious, more unkind, less mm-hmm. willing to work with others. Um, inside organizations, it produces worst decisions. So Mm. let's imagine I work in marketing, you work in finance. Mm. We are tribes. Mm. And I believe that the way I view the world, which is that the customer is the most important thing and that we need to invest to keep that customer is the right way of thinking about the business. You, on the other hand, believe that if we do that, we're going to go out of business because we're just going to spend a crazy amount of money trying to satisfy these customers who are always changing their mind. What tends to happen is that we produce real interpersonal conflicts between us. Mm. Um, we have factions in the organization that fight each other for resources, for attention, for agreement of the senior leaders, and we're not actually working together. Um, one layer down from that, just the cross-functional team. So let's imagine um, we put together a group of folks and they are every kind of diverse, diverse mm. Backgrounds, diverse races, diverse perspectives, diverse genders, everything. Um, That is, I think, almost universally seen to be a good thing. I certainly think it's a good thing to have diversity in the room. The problem is we don't give that group tools to manage, Mm -hmm. work through, and leverage the diversity. So my observation is what we tend to see is that the loudest voice wins. Mm -hmm. So we have diversity but we don't actually get to hear it. We don't actually get to hear all of the perspectives of the person who's quieter, the person who feels uh, less like they can put their voice forward. Um, and those who like to argue, those who speak loudly, those who have political power tend to win. And we don't hear from those quieter voices. So the organization is worse off. Hmm. We may have blind spots that that the loudest voice doesn't recognize. Hmm. And so we can see organizations struggling uh to innovate to grow in part because they're not doing a very good job of engaging the diverse voices in
0: the room interesting interesting uh pretty awesome by the way i think that's that's pretty awesome uh, and thank you so much for investing your effort in such a critical area uh, that we 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 will be impacted with this. When we are going forward, whether whether professionally or personally, so I I do appreciate your every effort in this. So now let's let's talk about this fascinating book, right? So creative, uh, creating great choices. So tell us the backstory behind what motivated this book. What what's the story to this book? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website. Firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast.
1: So, as I said, I started working with Roger Martin 12 years ago. He was just then publishing uh, a book on the subject of integrative thinking. And to sum up what integrative thinking is, essentially, it is the idea that when we are confronted with a tough either or choice, a a trade off between A and B, most of us say, Oh, the world is hard. My job is to choose. I'm going to pick the one. That is least worst you know the one i can live with Mm. and it's not great it's actually kind of miserable but what are you going to do integrative thinking suggests that you could actually use the tension between the opposing ideas as a platform for innovation use the tension to create something new what would it look like to take what i really value from option a what i really value from option b and to build something new so roger had uh, had this insight that some of the highly successful leaders he had met and worked with in his career seemed to do this. Most of the rest of us don't. And so in his book, the opposable mind, he told stories of as you from Procter Gamble and Isidore Sharp, uh, mm-hmm. of the four seasons and a number of other great leaders from across industries. And he sort of told the stories of how they had managed to do this. What was mm-hmm. the choice they faced and how did they actually overcome uh, and create a new choice? What was not in that book, was very much about how you or I could mm. think in this way or use this approach if it didn't come naturally to us. So it turns out A.G. Laughley just thinks this way, uh, mm. whether through his experience or his training or his childhood or I don't know what, this is how he thinks. He likes to hold models' intention and is always looking for a better answer. It's just in his mindset that's not how I always thought I sort of wanted to find the right answer very quickly. And once I had that right answer, I was done. I wasn't all that interested um, in, in revisiting or or pushing forward. And if someone had a different answer, it was unhelpful because it was wrong. I mean, if I have the right answer and you have a different answer, your answer is just wrong. Right. So what I wanted to do is, is work with Roger to figure out what the step-by-step process would be. Is there a recipe? Is there a, a way that you and I together in a team could actually tackle problems where we wished there was a better answer, what would that look like? And so we spent really about a decade honing and refining a process and working with executives, MBA students, educators who work with little kids, all kinds of different groups to figure out what would be the critical steps. How might we actually uh, teach those steps to people and by the time we reached the end of that decade, we sort of said, it's been 10 years. That's a, that's a long time mm. since the publication of the last book. We think we have something new to say. We think that we can put forward a methodology or an approach. Mm. Even if you hadn't read The Opposable Mind, even if you if you didn't feel inclined to read it, this could be a, a, a book that would help you think differently about the problems in front of you and create better choices more of the time.
0: Interesting. And so, sure, I think this... Wonderful thought came and, and you said, okay, we have to add something new. So now let's, let's talk about the incubation cycle, uh, mm-hmm. that goes into sort of from an ideation to actually getting a book published. Mm-hmm. So some of the nuances there, like what, 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 like, if you can embark on that journey, uh, what, what, do you, what you saw.
1: Sure. So I can tell you a bit about this book, which is an, an unusual process. I can tell you how it's unusual from others.
0: Right.
1: So, um, Roger and I both uh, had a long relationship with Harvard Business Review Press. So we knew the editors there, our great editor, Jeff Keo, the former uh, editorial director, Tim Sullivan, a number of folks. And so when it came time, we thought we had an idea for a book. Um, we did a very quick book proposal and sent it to Jeff just directly and said, what do you think? He was very excited and enthusiastic. Tim, similarly, very, very positive. And so they said, go write it, take the next. Six months or so, send us a manuscript when you're done. Harvard is an academic publisher, and so they send Mm. it out for peer review. The process there is they'll ask you for a couple of folks you might have something interesting to say. They similarly compile a list. They don't tell you who they send it to, it's a blind Mm. review process coming back. But essentially, they ask those reviewers is this person saying something interesting? Does it feel like it's a contribution? And should we publish this book or not? Uh, and Harvard, because of their unique position, Harvard Business Review Press, usually asks one academic, one practitioner leader, and then one other person, uh, mm-hmm. depending on the set uh, of, of concepts in the book. So, in that case, we sent it out. Two months later, you get feedback and you get a decision from Harvard saying, yes, we'll publish or no, we won't. There's a revision process that probably lasted maybe. Two months, you have time to go back and incorporate all the feedback from the reviewers that makes sense to you. And also, Jeff and Tim sent us similar uh, comments that they thought would be useful. We do that revision, send a new manuscript, and then you go into the traditional stages of publishing. Uh, There is a copy edit stage uh, where it's about the flow and making sure that all the sentences make sense. Then there's a proofreading stage, everything spelled right. Um, and then, and then finally you do a a final galley check to make sure that the figures are in the right place and all that sort of stuff. The process is pretty long with that peer review part in it. Um, so from the time we decided to submit the book proposal to the time the book came out, it gets between 18 months to two years. It's not, it's not Mm -hmm. a short process. Um, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of marketing and background stuff that happens after the galleys go in. So the actual publication... Uh, It doesn't typically happen until three or four months at minimum after you've signed off on the final step. So we're unusual in the sense that we had an existing relationship with that Uh, publisher. I think oftentimes uh, if you have a book idea, you have to figure out who you know, who knows Mm -hmm. someone so you can have a warm conversation or I I don't happen to have an agent Um, because of that existing relationship. Mm -hmm. Lots of folks find an agent to help them engage with publishers. And then a non-academic publisher would have a different looking process than Harvard Business Review or Stanford or uh, University of California Press or whatever the other publishers might be that are academic in nature.
0: We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website, firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job, let's get back to the podcast. Interesting. Thank you so much for walking us through that. I think other thing that I find um, from my background in, in authoring a book, so there there has been a time where there are some aha moment that, that you recollect uh, looking back in, in your writing journey that you were thinking, okay, this book will come out in this way. And, and then once you start writing and you say, hey, wow, I never realized that I have a lot more to say in that particular segment that I anticipated. What has been your aha moment uh, in in, in writing uh, Great Choices?
1: So It's it's interesting because the development of the theory took so long, Hmm. the actual writing was really short. I think we wrote Hmm. the bulk of the manuscript in six or seven weeks Hmm. um, because it was all sort of in our heads already. So most of the ahas came through the development Hmm. of the theory. There were moments where we learned something we thought was working really well and helping people to push to solve problems differently could be changed, shifted. Mm. we could Think about it differently. A lot of that happened over the period of 10 years. And so when we sat down to write, um, it was more getting that out on paper. So there were, I think, fewer ahas
0: mm. during the writing process. Interesting and 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 what about um in your decade journey right what are some of the things uh that that were sort of big surprises in 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 your sort of perception of what could be uh, a way to resolve this conflict and sort of getting getting to an answer vis a vis what you actually end up finding as as a solution like do you have some recollection of some of those cases that that you saw wow like that's we were thinking it in a different direction but it 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 ended up becoming a different one there
1: were. I think two huge um, surprises to me along the way. The first is who, the first relates to, to mm. who you do it. So we've been teaching integrative thinking in the MBA program and in our undergraduate commerce program to some executives for about four years or so. And we had a student from the MBA program come back to us and say, um, it's amazing that you're doing this for pretty privileged, pretty high-achieving 30-year-olds. Uh, MBAs and then executives who are even higher achieving and, and even more privileged and even older. Um, if this really is a helpful and productive way to help people solve their problems, and it pushes back on a lot of conventional education that says find the right answer, defend it at all costs. Aren't we leaving it a bit late? Like, shouldn't we mm. start earlier? Um, mm. Could we do this to high school kids and see if it helps them make better decisions? And um, so we said, well, let's sure, go, go try it. And and it was a young woman uh, named Ellie Avishai, who's a, a graduate. And she started an I think initiative, they called it mm. um, to teach this to kids. And before long, we figured out that mm. educators were really the people we needed to teach. And then they could teach the kids because that's how you get scale. Mm. Um, so what has been surprising to me about the who is I expected that there would be a gradation of quality that the younger the kids were, the less Thoughtful, sophisticated, and rich their solutions would be, Mm -hmm. and that the older you got through your life, um, you would just increasingly have a greater ability to think rigorously and critically, to uh, leverage the insights from your experience and from this discussion, and then create better answers. It turned out not to be the case. It turns out that um, little kids are amazing at this, Mm. they naturally. Um, see it as a thing worth doing. Um, Why can't I create a better answer? I'd love to create a better answer. Let's Mm. do it. Let's figure it out. Um, And they do kinds of work on challenges. So there's a a grade two teacher uh, who had a teacher come in and say, a parent rather come in and say, I understand when the kids were out at recess, Mm. they brought some snails back into the classroom and that's animal cruelty and you shouldn't do it. And so... She had the kids engage in an integrative thinking conversation, one model on one extreme, snails belong in nature. And the other model on the other extreme are snails belong in the classroom because they can help us learn. And you know what's the better answer between those two things with seven-year-olds? Um, and they engage, they're excited, they're interested all the way through high school. They do an amazing job, uh, particularly if you give them a problem they care about and that feels meaningful, meaningful to them. There's actually a little bit of a dip in some cases at the MBA level. Um, I love our MBA students. I think that they are uh, great, great and exciting people. But there is something that happens around the age of 28 or 30 with five years of work experience where you're probably at the height of your arrogance about how good you are. Like you've done very well up to that point in your career and you haven't yet hit that point where... Um, It becomes really clear how hard leadership actually is, leading other people, um, just how much of your job is going to be less about your technical skills and more about how you help other people uh, succeed. And so they struggle sometimes with even seeing this as as worth doing. They they do want the right answer and they want the A so they can get the great investment banking job. And then it increases again for executives, Um, executives, especially at the most senior levels of organizations. Know that their entire job um, boils down to creating strategy and leading people, mm. and integrative thinking is useful in both of those realms.
0: Interesting. So, um, if if we if we um, go slightly deeper into uh, creating great choices, kind of construct right. So, what is it, What is an anatomy of a great choice? Like, what really constitutes a great choice? Like, what are some of the indicators or some of the fabric or ingredients of a great choice?
1: And there is no. Um, Single definition because choices, particularly in the management sphere, are subjective, right? What is a great choice to me may not look and feel mm. like a great choice to you. Um, there are many different ways to win. Different organizations choose to prioritize different things. And so when we talk about creating great choices, we are talking about it from your own perspective. Mm. So you are creating an answer that is better than what you started with. You felt tension, you felt a trade off between two. Uh, opposing answers you didn't want to choose either because neither of them is good enough or by choosing one over the other, you're giving too much up. And so there's a subjective dimension where you say, I have a higher bar for the answer. I need my answer to look like this. And right now all the answers are down here. And so a great choice is one that resolves some of that tension and creates new value for you. And it might be a little bit of new value or it might be a huge amount of new value depending on uh, the nature of the problem and and how far you get right
0: now in seeking to solve it. Interesting, and I think um, and this is by the way from the personal experience that, that what I have seen, uh, great comes on a hindsight, right? So if I look back, certain mm-hmm. things I, I took ten decisions and probably three of them, maybe none of them actually ended up becoming great. So from that perspective, now if I'm if I'm looking forward uh, about sort of. What has been your finding and, and sort of from the sort of uh, way to figure out the better way to resolve a conflict and get to a solution? How do you like, is there any percentage of uh, success that you have seen? Hey, X questions or X, X decisions, probably that percentage would end up becoming uh, somewhat favorable in your in your direction to be calling it great.
1: Yeah, so we haven't done a quantitative analysis and you can imagine why that's the case, right? It is um, really hard to know, did the results of this uh, turn out the way that they did because of this decision? Could another decision have been better? Um, Or are there uh, outside variables that have caused that outcome regardless of my decision? Mm -hmm. And so the only way we can really know is for the individual to assess, right? Here were my alternatives, And here's what I believe would have happened in those two scenarios. And here's what I chose to do. Here's how I believed it created new value. Here's uh, my explanation of the new value that I saw it creating relative to where I began and why I believe that it has uh, been a better answer than if I just chose it. You will never know for sure in a complex social system like Mm. the modern corporation I think it's a little foolhardy to try. Mm-hmm. I suspect there are you know folks out there who know a lot more about statistics than I do who are mm-hmm. rolling their eyes and saying, "Of course you can figure this out. It's mm-hmm. just a sort of problem of uh, of experimental design, and that and that's probably mm-hmm. true. Um, but we are much more interested in the enablement of people, and so we spend more ta- more of our time training and and giving people these tools, and then they come back and say, this has mm-hmm. uh, been impactful in the following way. And sometimes it's very specifically about a given decision, but more often it's mm-hmm. about them in the world. That, that this methodology or this approach they feel just makes them a more effective leader or helps them see the world differently. I was uh, chatting with uh, a high school principal um, who said, You know, this has changed my life. It's changed how I engage with my family. It's changed um, all the work that I do. It's changed how I see what my job is. And so, that's harder again to quantify but i think really meaningful
0: interesting Um uh, no i think well said and i i definitely agree with you um so in i think um so what have been some of some of your personal examples where you have seen um this this conflict or this resolution happening like what are some of the stories and some of the uh some of the examples you could share yeah so
1: the, there are many different examples, some of which we get into in great detail in the book. So we talk about Jorgen Vignunstrup at Lego. Um just very quickly. So this is about the the origin of the Lego movie. And mm-hmm. uh, Rogers worked with Lego for, for a number of years on the strategy front. And when Jorgen told him this story, he immediately ran back to me and said, mm-hmm. It's an integrative solution. It's an integrative mm-hmm. Jorgen did this. And so essentially this was this was the the context. So um Lego makes the little plastic bricks, right? That's Mm. the core business that, you know, minifigures and bricks, they don't do anything else. They don't have other toy uh, lines or other brands. They're Lego. They've been Lego for their entire existence, Mm. but they do partner and they have for a long time. So Lucasfilm would come along and say, we want to make a video game with your little minifigs. Um, And so we'll do a licensing agreement. You can sell Luke Skywalker minifigs and we'll do a video game featuring that little minifig and kids will love it and we' we'll both make a lot of money and that's been great and they, they have done that for many many years but of course before long someone inside Lego said yeah, this is we're, we're a great brand all on our own we don't actually mm. have to rely on these other entertainment brands what if we actually wanted to do our own branded entertainment what if we wanted to make a movie that was just about Lego mm. and when you think about how to do that there there is at the heart a a trade-off that is really hard to reconcile, right? Which is, we're a great big corporate brand and we want to make a great movie. Typically, when we think about what a great movie looks like, it is spearheaded by an artistic visionary who's passionate about the subject, who loves what they're doing, who feels and owns that film, has total creative control. And that's what we think of as producing a great movie. On the other hand, if you think about it from Lego's perspective, they want to give some outsider total and complete creative control of a movie about lego it's their brand the single most important thing to lego is that their brand is protected and so they would want to keep the creative control for themselves they want sign off on the script they'd want to make sure that every aspect was true to the brand and took care of the the company and all of those things and so they tried a couple of times and not succeeded so there's a, a movie before the famous lego movie that is a Lego branded film called the adventures of clutch powers, which most people haven't heard of Mm. Um, because they really did default to Lego needs to be in charge. We need total creative control. It has to be brand true and earnest and all of the things that we associate with Lego. And it is, it is so earnest that one of the main characters uh, is named after the chairman of the board of Lego, right? Like it tells you (laughs) enough about, it's not an edgy film. Let's just say that. Um, not successful artistically and not successful financially. And it doesn't do anything to help the Lego brand. In fact, you could say it diminishes it. So when they are approached by a, a major studio to say, let's do a large scale, big Lego movie, Jorgen is confronted with this choice. Like, do I insist that we have creative control and just try to do it better? Or do I acknowledge there's nothing I can do? The most important thing is giving total creative control to the, the talent so that they will make a really, really good movie but I just trust that they will be good to us and not kind of screw over the Lego brand. There, there's no real good point between mm. those frames. Like, you could try to create a really sophisticated contract, but he recognized pretty quickly that to get anyone worth having to make this film, you had to give them creative control. There is no good filmmaker who's going to say, absolutely, a big corporate brand can sign off on my script. And so he said, if they have to have creative control, is there a new way of thinking about the problem such that I can still have meaningful influence. I can still ensure that they take care of Lego. What could I do? How could I think about it? So that ultimately the people who care most about Lego will be protected. And what he did was say, you Lord and Miller filmmakers, you get creative control off. You go, go do something creative. But before you do, You need to come and spend meaningful time, not with me, not with my board of directors, not with my senior leaders, but with the people who love Lego Mm. the most in the world. And you're nodding. You know who that is, right? Little kids. Little kids love Lego. It is uh, a passion for them. And he said, if you come and you play with kids, like you play Lego and you watch them and you talk to them and you engage with them and you come spend time at uh conventions. I didn't know this. There are conventions for Lego of mm-hmm. adult super fans who love 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 Lego beyond all. He believed that if they did that, they would fall in love with Lego. Right? Mm-hmm. They would fall in love with it as a child does. They would recognize the responsibility they had not to Lego the company but to Lego the idea. Lego uh as a kid loves it. And so that was the deal. Was you know, we will be totally confident that they will take care of Lego because they don't want to disappoint the five-year-olds, right? Mm. And that t- turned out to be extraordinarily successful. Uh, Lord and Miller had creative control of the film, but Lego felt confident that it was going to be uh, something that took care of the brand. And it turned out, you know, to be massively successful.
0: Wow. I think that's, that's a fascinating story, but and thank you for sharing that and um, love to read more of it in, in, in the book. So um Let's talk about, in your experience, in your journey, like what are some of, some of your personal hurdles where you actually have seen um, this great great choice uh, mindset or landscape happening, if you can share some of the stories there.
1: Yeah, so I, this is a really good question. I I think for me, integrated thinking, yes, is a distinct process that you can get a team together, put a problem in front of you and work on it. And I've done that with lots of different groups with lots of different challenges. Um, but for me, the most meaningful impact of integrative thinking is integrative thinking not just as a process, but as a way of being in the world. And as I said, I started out as a relatively brittle MBA student mm. who believed I have the right answer. Anyone who disagrees with me is wrong and therefore not worth listening to. Mm. Maybe they're not as smart as me, or maybe they're not as understanding of the world, or maybe they have an evil agenda of some kind, right? And so I would dismiss them completely and utterly out of hand. And so for me, integrative thinking, just the acknowledgement that there is value in opposition, that there is value not in arguing, but in understanding. Seeking to understand what I believe and why I believe it, what you believe and why you believe it, in hopes that we can find an answer that, that is something other than where we started has changed how I engage in conversations and it's changed my sort of instant gut reaction. I, I love, uh, I'm on Twitter and I really enjoy Twitter. Um, and I, there are lots of times where I want to reply really quickly to something. Someone has tweeted and I'm like, Mm. all right, what, what don't I see? How are they thinking about this? Try to see what might be valuable in that view. And just that check that slowing down, I think makes me, um more likely to engage with ideas longer and learn than I might have been otherwise
0: interesting, interesting. So I think one one uh, other um, area I want your perspective on. I think you you talked about um, storytelling, important storytelling and sort of in getting the thought across. And, and 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 you spoke about um, the applicability right mm. so if 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 you if you see on the paradigm storytelling obviously it slows things down sort of it's, it's it requires a lot of uh, 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 consortium of thoughts coming together and, and getting things done but applicability is getting something quick out that i can i can really use so from your sort of um, vantage point what is the, what is the the balance between the two like how could we balance the storytelling and the applicability uh, when it comes to sort of decision making.
1: So I'm I'm a huge believer in storytelling. I think that storytelling is how human beings learn, right? There's a reason why every religion teaches through parable, hmm. right? Um, that those stories are intended to be memorable and visceral and instructive. Hmm. And I think what we tend to see now we have sort of this tyranny of PowerPoint where just come in and I'm going to show you all the data and the data is Mm going to be abundantly clear and you will come to the right conclusion and the right answer on the basis of the brilliance of the data, as if the data is somehow unbiased and and can only be interpreted in one way. Mm -hmm. And I suspect you've been in meetings where it was abundantly clear to you what the data said. And some person sitting across from you was like, well, no, it shows the opposite of that. I actually would make the opposite recommendation on the basis of the data. And so I think that that the greatest tool for for data scientists for for folks who who are doing work in that area is to say how do I make the data tell a story? How mm-hmm. do I help it uh, become more human? Um, tie it to a narrative that is understandable to people who are not me, so that we can have a conversation about it um, without sort of debating the decimal point.
0: Mm. Interesting, and, and what's, your, what's your perspective on the design thinking aspect of this? Like, so what where does that fit into this um, choice paradigm?
1: So we think of design thinking as, as being kind of a sister discipline to integrative thinking. They're both problem-solving tools, ways of coming at problems. I think that uh, design thinking is extraordinarily great when you have a, a particular innovation challenge. It might not be an either mm. or choice, but you have a space you want to explore or an area of opportunity. And the two biggest contributions, in my view, of design thinking to to the discourse around innovation, the first, starting with the deep, meaningful understanding of the user, I think that that's extraordinarily valuable um, and is implicit, I think, in integrative thinking. But the second Mm -hmm. uh, big contribution of design thinking to the world of innovation is in the idea of rapid prototyping. So how do we take early rough ideas, um, build them out? in whatever way we can imagine building it. So it can be a drawing, it can be a 3D model, it can be a role play, it can be whatever, and get that in front of people much more uh, quickly than we would normally be comfortable, get their feedback and iterate, and do it again, and do it again, and do it again. It's an extraordinarily key contribution of uh, design thinking that we see echoes of in things like Agile and, and other innovation forms. And it is something that we took very closely to heart for a long time. When we talked about integrative thinking, we sort of said you take the opposing models and you seek to understand them. You try to figure out what you want to take, you create possibilities for better answers, and then you were done. And And design thinking really pushed us to to think differently about that and say, new ideas are um, amongst the, the most fragile things in the world, right? Mm. Uh, if it hasn't happened before, You haven't proven in advance that it can work. If it's truly new, there's no proof. And so it's really easy to say, let's just keep doing what we're doing. Um, That feels risky. That feels untried. And if you can't prove it, I don't want to do it. And so what we said is, um, in integrative thinking, we wanted to embrace the spirit of rapid prototyping. So we added a a Mm state at the end of the process that said, take these possibilities, these ideas of a better answer, and actually do some testing. And we say, for each of the ideas, ask yourself and your team, what would have to be true for that to be a great answer? What would have to be true about our industry and our competitors and our customers and us? What would, it, what would have to be true for that to be a meaningfully better answer than where we are today? And how would we know if those are true? What tests could be run? What analysis? What data do we already have that we just have to look at differently? Um, And so that was a huge influence for us from design thinking. We think it's um, something you should add to any process, whether you're actively engaged in design thinking or not. If you have a new idea, if you're thinking about something that hasn't been tried before, whether, as I say, it comes out of a Lean Six Sigma process or a a, a design thinking process, um, asking yourself, how can we do that very early, very rapid testing before we move to full scale, before we even move to a big pilot? I think makes you more likely to be successful rather than
0: less. Interesting, uh, pretty cool. I think I definitely, uh, I appreciate you sharing that. So one thing that I was thinking about when when you were talking about, I think um, in, in one of the previous conversation about uh, uh, this integrative thinking approach of taking ideas from as many sort of stakeholders as possible. I think one thing that comes to my mind is not, uh, and that I'm wearing my consultant hat. So. Mm-hmm every industry is different right so every industry has a uh, varying level of stakeholder that 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 take part in this conversation to get to decision making and in many aspect it just slows down the decision making process the more sort of stakeholders you have so from from your um, from your vantage point are there any some some industries that are more favorable towards um, this creative uh, um, creating great choices framework um, or, or, or some industry which are really bad or at least which are they have a long sort of uh, road to cross on that so what what's your one day point on that
1: yeah so i would say for me it's less about industry and more about context within that industry so i think it's applicable across industry um but it's not for every problem so let's imagine you have a problem to be solved you have a very short amount of time to solve it in whatever answer you launch is uh, something you can uh, easily step back from not going to cost you a lot and Mm -hmm. you have an answer you already kind of like like it's not perfect but you kind of like it Mm. go and do it like (laughs) get it get it out there execute and learn in market um integrative thinking is really for those situations where the answers on the table aren't good enough the answers on the table don't Mm. give you what you need um, where if you were to start trying to do it it feels like um, it would be hard to come back and, and change um, it would be extraordinarily expensive to try it, all those reasons, right? And so the way I think about it is I'm not sure integrative thinking is slower than other decision-making methodologies yeah. if you take into account the time from when you start to yeah. effective action, right? So sometimes we say there's not enough time to be inclusive and really think about it and come to a great answer. We just have to accept what we've got. We know it's not very good. And just everyone around here, I know you don't agree with this answer, but just do it. Mm. That's that's dangerous, right? I know you don't agree with it, but just do it is a recipe for uh, undermining, Mm. foot dragging, uh, second guessing. And so it actually takes way longer for that idea to get implemented. And very often those ideas fail because we didn't invest the time in figuring out whether there was a better answer, engaging the stakeholders. Um, And so I think we sometimes fool ourselves. That if we don't engage the stakeholders, that it will be faster and easier, and those are the kinds of of solutions that wind us wind up biting us in the butt at the end.
0: Interesting. So, so basically, so what you're recommending is that we should we should, as an organization, build a, a framework to find a consensus quickly because that's relevant. Instead of sort of, as you said, that if leadership say, "Hey, I," because I'm saying, "Just do it." So, from that yeah. perspective, is that is that right?
1: Well, we believe integrated thinking doesn't have to take a huge amount of time. It, it can be done in an afternoon or a day on a given problem. But it's also a social process that enables you to bring more folks into the conversation and have them feel ownership of the solution. And sometimes you just have to boss things in. I, I don't want to pretend the world is perfect. Mm. But I think mm. we default to that way more often than is optimal.
0: Interesting. And I think um, other area I find interesting nowadays is um, Previously, I used to remember that um, I used to go to an office, and that office like every we have, the entire towns were created around those these great businesses as they were, they were expanding. But nowadays, uh, because of thanks to internet and, and 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 sort of these remote tooling and 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 working sort of uh, platforms, someone can in the village in Tuscany with a laptop could could be as productive as uh, a neighboring guy going to a Manhattan office. So how is that um, sort of changing landscape of globalism and with sort of we are, uh, many of the companies are actually having these workers working from home and all that. How difficult does that make uh, getting a consensus when you're not, because if if we are physically at a room, I can see their facial expression. I can see your angst. I can see the the temperature in the room and, and at least get somewhere with that. But I think now being on Skype, really hardly anything Um, it's it's like most of these cues are just dropped because I'm not seeing majority of the conversation that is happening between us which is probably not 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 verbal and and at least this particular square landscape so what's what's the result like what what has been your um, uh, observation on that
1: so I often say integrative thinking is an individual skill and a team sport so I do believe that you will do better if you have a group of folks that you're working with That said, I think technology is ever-increasing. So I would never Mm -hmm. have said you could do um, consensus building or integrative thinking exercises on the phone, right? There's just not Mm -hmm. enough resolution there. Over the last year or so, I've done a number in whether it's go-to-meeting or WebExes where people are in different parts of the world. As long as we can see each other and we are Mm -hmm. seeing from the same song sheet in terms of we're going through a process together, um, we are working through this methodology of integrative thinking um, it's actually interesting to me that you can get um, quite a lot of value even if you're not physically in the same room and as tools get better and better and better as we increasingly get to a place where we can engage almost as if we were in the same room uh, I'm really optimistic about what's possible
0: interesting and and what's what's your uh, perception on the future of work as as uh, as it- so from I think uh, from your Martin Institute, uh, you're actually having a good vantage point on what whatever is happening around and and how sort of political situation is happening, how the technology is getting us uh, getting in our nerves when when we talk about say tribalism and what and whatnot. So what and and with that in mind and this book in mind, what do you think is happening to the future of work and worker and workplace? Whatever you can share on that.
1: Yeah, I, it is a fascinating time to think about the future of work. Um globalization has uh, changed the composition of what work looks like in North America um, very dramatically. Um, Technology, similarly, many jobs that used to exist no longer exist. And um, the way we tend to think about the future of work from our perspective is um, we know that there are uh, ways of thinking about work that fall into two broad categories, right? So there is um, very routine uh, jobs with very little human judgment, independent decision-making. And then there are more creative jobs, knowledge work, where there's a lot of independent judgment and decision-making, where um, there, there's a huge benefit um, to a human doing it versus versus uh, not. There are a number of jobs that we're going to see in the routine category be replaced with machines, but not all. Um, the largest dominant sector of routine work is actually in the service sector. Some mm-hmm. of those jobs will go away, but not all of them and certainly not quickly. Um, and those jobs unfortunately are very low pay, extremely hard uh, emotionally physically often there's shift work, um, unpredictability, no benefits and they are the majority of jobs. the, the majority mm-hmm. of jobs in in North America, still are routine intensive versus creative jobs. Creative jobs Mm. are not going quickly enough. Mm. So our question is how might we take jobs like uh, a frontline retail clerk or Mm. um, someone who works in, in a Walmart and turn that from a bad job, low paid, low independent judgment and decision making into a good job not just by paying them more, but by redesigning the work so that mm. they deserve to earn more, right? So I th- think it's great that we're talking about raising the minimum wage, but what I would love and even more is to say, how do you take a job where we have traditionally asked people to turn off their brain mm. and turn it into a job where mm. their brain is an asset? Mm. There's just not going to be um, enough work yeah, designing space shuttles uh, mm. for for us to and maybe even machines would be better designing space shuttles than people anyway, eventually. Mm. Um, so how do we take what makes us human, the true value of that, which is around empathy and creativity, mm. and bring that into more kinds of work? And if we can do that, do we have a shot at a better society?
0: Interesting. And, and, and um, by the way, beautifully said, and thank you so much for sharing that so um let's talk about um do you have any cases where you have seen the integrative thinking fail like do you see uh, where you said okay eh, it's, it doesn't weigh the way we we'll, we'll never anticipate the way it turned out to be uh, do you have any sort of those quotable examples
1: absolutely so um the most common form is we start with the two opposing answers we spend a bunch mm-hmm. of time thinking about them and then say is there a better answer and we just there's nothing forthcoming right now the insight isn't there um we're not ready we don't see something and so we say all right well if we aren't able to come up with a better answer in this instance which of the existing options do we want to choose right so that's one form of failure Um, we still think that there's value in using integrative thinking because at the very least you understand the options better than you did Mm -hmm. Um, are there cases where someone used integrative thinking came up with an answer that they thought was great tried it in the marketplace and it failed I think that's probably likely to be the case. I haven't had a lot of people come tell me that because why would they want to tell me that they tried it and and it failed? Um, But I think the important thing is um, that a lot of folks say, you know, it failed that time, but that doesn't mean that it will fail next time or the next time. The world is complex. You can't control all the variables. It was a good idea, but it was ahead of its time, or it was a good idea, but the competitors moved more quickly, whatever else it might be. Um, So I have no doubt there are examples uh, of failure, but I don't have a lot of uh, stories to share from
0: that perspective. Interesting. Interesting. And, and so um, regarding this book, like what, what, who are the typical reader that you, that you anticipated when you start writing this book, who are, who are the target readers? uh, Do you expect this book to read?
1: So we talked about it as being a leader's guide for integrative thinking. And so the, the obvious target there is, is definitely business leaders of, of all types. So folks in organizations who are accountable for making decisions um, from CEO to managing director to people leaders who, who are just sort of starting down that leadership journey. Um, but we've also heard from a lot of high school principals who see it as useful um, from kids who see it as useful in just how they're making decisions about their lives. So um, we think it's a, it's a pretty broad, broad audience of anyone who wishes that they had another tool for their tool belt. So we have lots of great decision-making tools we learn in school that we already have. And then this is an additional one that you can turn to when some of those traditional methodologies fail you.
0: Interesting. And so, and and what is what is the thing that you want um, the readers to take away from the book? Like what are, what are some of the thoughts? So
1: one, I want them to understand that it's possible. So if mm. seven-year-olds can do it, um, and A. G. Laffley can do it. Then there's a huge range of opportunity between those two things for, for each of us. Um, and and for me, it's a, at least in part about changing the conversation. I, I'm really disheartened um, to to see the political discourse, in particular, mm-hmm. um, in which anyone who disagrees with us is one of stupid or evil, or or sometimes both. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I don't have to pay attention to you. I don't have to. Listen, my job is to, to make fun of you. Um, and there are certainly people in the world who f- fall into the categories of stupid or evil. There, there are folks with whom I strenuously disagree, even despite mm. my integrative thinking training. But I worry that without at least an intention to seek to understand each other, we move further and further and further and further apart. And I, I truly do worry um, for the future of our nations for the future of um society which sounds hyperbolic uh but Mm. when you go on facebook and you watch how people speak to each other um Mm. it it can be really scary and so i i want to provide some hope that there are other ways of engaging with people who disagree with us um that are more productive and more helpful and less scary
0: interesting and and what's what's the future of this conversation like so uh, I think definitely this, this this part, books like the, these create a, create a dialogue, create a, create a community, create a so conversation around sort of um, creating great choices and all. Like, from from your design of this book, like what, what is the future of this book?
1: So we definitely have, have the book out there and are hoping that people will use it and work on things in their organizations and tell us about it, get back to us so that we can uh, figure out ways to share those stories mm-hmm. with other people. Um, we're seeking to employ some of the integrative thinking work on our, on questions of democratic capitalism. So you'll see more of the theme and work that comes out of the Martin Prosperity Institute over the next year or so. Um, so those are the two big vectors that, that we're focused on right now.
0: Interesting. So, um, that brings us, uh, at the end of, uh, this conversation around the book. So I definitely want to spend some time on your background, if, if, if you don't mind, um, uh, so I think one thing definitely I want to know uh, in your journey uh, through uh, your academia and through through your research, what are some of the key tenets of your success? Uh, if 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 you tame it, like what are some of the factors that you think has helped you achieve what you what you've achieved?
1: That's well, a great question. So one, um, I had a belief when I was younger that I needed to know exactly what I was going to do and have a path. And mm-hmm. the most cool fun and rewarding things I've done have been when I took a leap without really knowing what it would lead to. Mm. Someone would put, put an opportunity in front of me and I'd say, well, that sounds fun or hard or interesting. I don't know where it leads, but I'll try it. That tends to be um, you know, sort of the the path that has worked more for me than planning this move, then that move, then that move. Um, so I think that's uh, one thing. I think the second um, this is something I learned from Roger. um He talks about uh being relentlessly useful mm. so you know who whatever you're doing, whoever you're working with, whatever the situation is, having in your own mind that your job is to be helpful to that person yeah. um, and more in how they would see it as helpful as opposed to you deciding what would be helpful, right. Mm. So this notion of relentless utility, trying to figure out how I can be helpful to people has been a theme uh, through my work. And I think transformative for, for what is possible. So that's my big insight is be relentlessly useful, regardless of the context or situation.
0: Beautifully said. Um, uh, so uh, how about any favorite read that our favorite books that, that, that you have read that you want to share with our viewers and listeners?
1: Um, so I mean, Pride and Prejudice is still the best book, but I assume you don't mean that. Okay. Although I will say this, um, I have a great colleague here at Rotman named Maya Dijik, who, who's a psychologist and she's done work on empathy and she's found that when we read fiction, we hmm. boost our ability to have empathy for other people. Um, Interesting. So we all read more fiction and that's everything okay. from comic books to, uh, Pride and Prejudice. So do that in terms of, uh, business books, I think the ones that have had the most influence on me, um, Dan- Danny Kahneman's "Thinking Fast and Slow" mm-hmm. is fantastic. If you haven't yet read it, most of you have, but if you haven't, it's great. Adam Grant uh, just wrote uh, "Originals." Uh, before that, give or take, both of those are excellent. And um, apropos of our conversation about how we see each other and how we communicate, Jonathan Haidt at NYU wrote a book a couple of years ago called "The Righteous Mind," which talks about how we reason and, and how we come to our conclusions and helps explain a bit about the divide between left and right um, that I think is really, really useful. And the last one um, sounds super nerdy, but it's really interesting. Um, uh, a MIT operations professor named Zeynep Tan does work with us on the future of work. She's phenomenal. And she wrote a book called The Good Job Strategy. She studies um, a lot of the jobs we were talking about, so low-cost retail. And she studies companies that have broken the trade-offs. So organizations like Costco and Trader Joe's nice. that offer great jobs mm. and great wages and make a ton of money mm. and she explores operationally how they do that. And so if you, if you have uh, influence, if you, whether it's retail or just any service industry, um, I think there are lessons that can be learned uh, from her work. So those would be the big ones I would recommend.
0: Beautiful, Seta. Uh, and again, Jennifer, thank you so much. Uh, we are almost at the last end of the conversation. So last but not the least, so if you want um, listeners and viewers to take away something from this conversation, um, what would that be? What would be a closing remark for, for, our, for our viewers and listeners?
1: So for me, it's fairly fundamental. Very often when we're faced with a tough either or, either a choice in front of us, or I believe one thing and you believe the other, we frame it really simply that I've got to choose. I've got to find the single mm. right answer. I've got to move forward. And what I would want people to take away is just the notion that it may be worth trying however much time you've got five minutes, an hour, however long um, to see the real value in each of the opposing perspectives to really seek to fall mm. in love with them and understand what it is uniquely that they bring, how uh, there is value in them. And then to use those insights to imagine a better answer, to to seek a world that is different than it is today. Uh,
0: with that, um, Jennifer, thank you so much for being really candid with, uh, with with your with your opinions and and spending a generous amount of time with our listeners and viewers, sharing your journey through this book, uh, sharing what the perspective. And and I think I am definitely thankful to you uh, on behalf of my community, uh, to folks at Martin Prosperity Institute, for doing a research on such a critical topic and i think we are all sort of as as i said before we are all facing this problem as an organization as an individual as a society so someone has to do a research so i definitely do appreciate uh, you spending time there and loving to have you back on the podcast uh, sometime in future with uh, more more work from uh, from from prosperity institute that, that you that you want want to share and uh, thank you so much for your time and 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 wish you nothing but success in your journey in this uh, in this institute and hope you you help us solve the society
1: <laughs> well thank you it was an absolute pleasure to be on uh, anytime i'd be happy to do it again
0: thank you uh.